0: had a good time with Wayne House last Thursday and Sunday and learned a lot, and you will um, have the opportunity to learn about what I did in two or three weeks. It's going to take me about that long to kind of go through pictures and videos and process what I went through, but just to let you know that it was not a vacation they had us in the van every morning at 7.30, going somewhere. And we usually got back somewhere between 9.15 and 10.15. And we're going the whole day. So, and when you put 12 large people into a 12-passenger van, there were a lot of people, I, you know... My knees been giving me a lot of trouble. All things work together for good. That meant I got the seat in the van where I had to stretch out my leg because it would just cramp. It would not work if I had it bent. So I everybody was jealous of me. But uh, it went well, and I was able to walk through the whole thing, so that all worked well too. And I appreciate the prayers on that. So it was a, um, but it was very interesting, learned, learned a lot. I already seemed to know uh, a lot. There were several people in our group. We had 12 in our group. And there were probably a third, at least a third to half of the group um, lived in areas where there were probably more cows than Jewish people. But they have a great love for Israel and a great love for the Jewish people. So that was good. And we had some really interesting, interesting experiences along the way. So we'll get into all of that in a, in a couple of weeks. All right, in terms of announcements, there's a Fort Bend County Fair evangelism event that comes up at the end of the last, last weekend in September and I believe the first uh, weekend of October, which is a busy weekend because that's also the same time We're having the evangelism and apologetics seminar on that on that Saturday, and I'm hoping I'll get this trip done. And this is—I don't think this is um, accidental—that we're having a just sort of a, 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 a this emphasis on evangelism, this focused concentration of stuff on evangelism at this particular time. God's preparing us for something, so that means you need to be prepared for whatever it is the Lord's going to bring our way. So Fort Bend County Fair on uh, the weekends of September 29th to October 9th, there'll be training sessions on the Saturday mornings in September. Uh, the Evangelism and Apologetic Seminar, and then our uh, annual church picnic uh, Saturday, October 21st. One of my colleagues on the Chafer Seminary Board went to be with the Lord this morning, Hal Hagemeyer. I have known Hal since I was in the first grade. Hal was a couple of years older than me. His younger brother, Chuck, was in my Sunday school class from the first grade on as we grew up at Baraka, and then they moved to corpus the family did and i didn't see them i would hear something occasionally over the years and then probably about uh, about the time we started the church about 20 years ago uh at least i reconnected with chuck and and with hal and hal served on the board for chafer seminary he was the uh, song leader and a deacon at the national capital bible church where dan ingram is the pastor and he just was a a tremendous a tremendous individual who served the Lord. His 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 wife, um, preceded him in her uh, trip to heaven about five years ago after suffering for many years with ALS. So they have two children. I, I know Jenny. I don't know this. I don't think I've ever met the son. I baptized Jenny Hagermeyer at Camperete ten years ago, but. Um, so that is uh, just pray, pray for our board for Chafer because we're in a transition period due to just aging, and but we've got some great younger men who are in their mid-40s to mid-50s who are of a great age to serve the seminary for uh, quite a few years to come, So, but be in prayer for us as we uh, fill, these, uh, fill these slots. Uh, Let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer, please. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer first. Our Father, we are so grateful that we have you to come to. You are our anchor. You're our fortress. You're our rock. You are our high tower. You are the one who protects us and preserves us in our salvation. You are the one who keeps us, and so we don't have to worry about that. You are the one who has loved us in such a way that you gave your only begotten Son uh, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins as only he could do. Father, we live in a time period of tremendous changing tides of ideology as we shift from a history in this nation where we have been domin- have dominated by a Judeo-Christian worldview to one that is totally hostile to Jews and Christians, and Father, we pray for us that we may continue to be a light in this time uh, through Your Word, and that we may be uh, may realize that the opportunities to witness are tremendous. Uh, There may be some resentment at times, there may be some hostility, but as we uh, learn of what missionaries have gone through, we still won't see anything like that uh, here. But we know that we need to be trained and to be ready. And we look forward to that, Father, just pray for hal 's family, for Jenny, for her brother, for his sister Betsy, and uh, Father, we just know that all, they are all saved, and they all understand the issues, and this is a time of of uh rejoicing as well as uh, temporary sorrow because uh, we know that that uh, we'll miss him and but we look forward to that ultimate reunion. Uh, either at the rapture or as we all get to heaven. So Father, we thank you for that and ask you to, uh, help us to think through the things we study this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We're continuing through the interlocked series. Tonight we are in finishing up lesson four. Last time we looked at, uh, the first half of lesson four, which talked about the basically three summarized three basic responses To the pagan worldview. And, uh, that you find that Christians had. Uh, not that, not that pagans had, but that Christians had. And we, we went through that. And today we're looking at how we should respond to that in terms of a counterattack of these falsehoods. Now that's not a militancy thing. But it is a counterattack because we're in a battle. And the battle right now is for the souls of our children and our grandchildren. And we have to understand what the Scripture says about how we fight the battle and so that the Lord gets the glory and uh, gets the victory. So this is very important information. So we have our events, our 11 Old Testament events, eight New Testament events, 19 in all, and I want us to stand up and just go through this. We didn't do it last week, but I want to do it again tonight. I got a new book when I was at Friends of Israel headquarters that is a summary. Everybody up, don't just sit there looking around because I'm still talking. Y'all are worse than children. My goodness. We're really getting a chance to train teachers a little bit on... um, Uh, trying to control their students. So anyway, um, but it's a great summary book. Lots of charts, lots of pictures, and... um and I'm really thinking about this. So we'll probably go through about a year with this chart. That's what you'd use with younger kids. And then we'll add probably 15 or 20 more events to it so that when we get all of that done, there's, it's a really detailed pattern. But, but y'all are smart. You can do it. Your brains need a little exercise. All right, so let's, uh, let's work our way through this. We start off with creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel, Call of Abraham. Then we have the Exodus and then the giving of the law with the Ten Commandments. Then we have the conquest of the promised land. And after that, we have the establishment of the kingdom. And then it divides into two. So you had the northern and southern kingdom. And then God is going to take them out of the land. And after 70 years, he, there will be a partial return. So there is a land and a people for the Messiah to come to. So that's the Old Testament. Then we have the New Testament, which begins with the birth of the promised Messiah. He will die on the cross. He'll be buried. And on the third day, he rises from the dead. And then 10 days later, or 40 days later, ascends to heaven. From heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit. And the church begins on the day of Pentecost. So you have the beginning of the church. The church ends when Christ returns at the rapture, and we meet him in the air. And then that is followed by seven years of tribulation. If you notice, I added this last week. We have the seven-year tribulation. And then Jesus returns to the earth at the second coming, followed by the thousand-year kingdom. And then there's the great white throne judgment for all unbelievers. Very good. Very good. You can... Pat yourself on the back and have a sit down. So what we've done so far, we've looked at lesson one, God's creation, the divine institutions. One of the primary things we learned there is the creator-creature distinction, which is violated in chapter 3 of Genesis. Eve violates that. That's at the root of her sin. She wants to act like the creator and not a creature. And then that changes everything. God established three divine institutions. We saw personal responsibility or responsible choice, and then marriage, and then family. That's instituted in perfection before sin comes along. Uh, the second lesson focused on wrong views of creation. You have the ancient world that has their pagan views of creation. There's always an eternity of something. There's an eternity of matter, an eternity of gas, eternity of the, of the, of the, of the ancient gods or something, and that there's always something there out of which the creation develops. And the term for this is continuity of being. Which is very important. Really, start. It, I, most people say it starts with Aristotle. I don't think think it did, because I think this just in terms of Romans one, you have the uh, <clears throat> creature wanting to worship the, uh, uh, the, the 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 creature, man wanting to worship the creature rather than the creator, worship the creation rather than the creator. That's what the chain of being or continuity continuity of being is all about so that <clears throat> got a scientific facelift in the 1700s and 1800s and um and that's when we began to look at the the uh, onslaught of evolution which is a philosophy it is not and it's a philosophy and a religion it is not science as we saw science by definition is uh, working with observable, repeatable phenomena in order to develop an understanding of how things uh, how things work. You cannot observe or repeat in any laboratory or in in the world uh, anything in evolution. Lesson three looks at the the fall, and the fall is uh, reverberates through everything and it changes humanity and we are now under the uh, curse of sin and judgment which is so fundamental to understand this this last week as i went to the this jewish encounter event we had a talk with a rabbi for an hour and a half which was fascinating now he said almost the same thing in a talk to the encounter group back in july But there he mentioned that he has a belief in reincarnation. But what he basically shows is that what the the fundamental belief in in Judaism is this idea called Tikkun Olam, which is from, um, that's spelled T-I-K-K-U-N, Olam, O-L-A-M. And it is the idea that it's freely translated to repair the world. And the bottom line was it's a form of post They're going to repair the world and make it better and better until it's welcoming to the Messiah. So it's sort of a post-millennialism. The Christian version is the Holy Spirit's going to make things better and better, uh, bring in the kingdom, and then, then the king will come. Uh, but that, that's it. There's no doctrine of total depravity. So if man isn't fallen, if he's not uh, constitutionally marred by sin and spiritually dead, then he's perfectible. And if human beings are perfectible, then society is perfectible. And that's what lies at the root of all utopianism. That's not for what you'll be teaching the five to 10-year-old kids or the 10 to 12-year-old kids, but that's what the teachers need to understand. So that lesson looked at Sin impacted uh, the divine institutions after the fall. Uh, This lesson looks at the three responses Christians had to this onslaught of evolution, and we looked at that last time. Now, the big issue is understanding worldview. It's how people think. It's how people think. I remember coming across this concept studying totalitarianism, the history of totalitarianism in college, and also the history of of the German Reichs, and the uh, onslaught of Nazism as I studied about World War II. And the German word is Welt, which means world, Anschauung, and which has to do with vision. And I've read that word on every page 10 or 12 times on a book this thick, so it got drilled into me. A lot of people don't ever hear that word. They don't think that they have a worldview, but everybody looks at the world and they process the events in their life through some sort of grid. Now, you can either have a a biblical grid, which we refer to as a Judeo-Christian worldview, or you can have a non-biblical grid, which is just, generally speaking, a pagan worldview or human viewpoint, but it has very many different uh, facets or manifestations. But at its root is a denial of the creator-creature distinction And uh, in support, there's always, in one way or another, this continuity of being lies at the heart of it. Second, because there's no infinite, eternal, personal, sovereign God that's impersonal fate and chance rules, so everything is just ordered by some impersonal uh, fate or luck, and the ultimate authority in the pagan worldview is self. It's all about me. So that's it, and, it's, and that's been institutionalized right now because of the influence of, of Freud and psychology and a number of other factors over the last hundred years. So we saw this comparison last week between the uh, high school age interlocked curriculum and the children's. Now the children's really focused on there's a lot of good activities to do there teaching kids how do you know what is true and what is false and it all and it reinforces it's the authority of God's word the authority of God's word so that's an outstanding lesson uh, to go through with 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 kids and the, God always tells the truth and Satan is the is a liar and that's what this what the scriptures teach and so last time we went through the uh, ways in which uh, churches wanted to accommodate to the pagan view, we looked at uh, one way as they said, oh, there's really gaps in those genealogies. And we saw, no, there aren't. Uh, there aren't gaps. Um, there's no reason to put gaps in there. Gaps wouldn't, don't get you anything. Uh, and they're certainly not going to get you 100,000 years or 50,000 years. Uh, and it would destroy the foundations. We'll look at that in a little a little more in a minute. It would destroy the foundations of the Old Testament. The, the, the gaps are there for what reason? Anybody remember? There's a promise in Genesis 3.15. The promise is what? The seed of the woman is going to step, on, crush the head of the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the serpent is going to... Uh, uh, bite him on the heel. So it traces the seed of the serpent all the way through. That's, I mean, the seed of the woman all the way through. So that's what those genealogies are to show is so you can trace the parentage of Jesus, his fa- his family tree. Then there's the old age gap view. I believe in a new, uh, new uh, or our young earth gap view. The old age gap view just tried to ad- totally accommodate to Uh, to evolution and ram-crammed and jammed um, tens of thousands of years in between Genesis 10 and 15. They had a a pre-Adamic race. The biggest problem was if death is the penalty for sin, and death is, is not just for man, it's for all creatures, uh, then then, uh, and if you had uh, all these fossils as they, they put all the fossils and dinosaurs before that, if death is the consequence and penalty of sin, you can 't have anything die before genesis uh, genesis three and that 's the biggest theological problem with it, but there 's many other problems with it and then there was a third, which was the day age the day age view. So we looked at the problems with that, which is what I just mentioned, the problem of death before the fall. And then the Old Testament, when it reflects back on the creation event, for example, in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, the law for the Sabbath, for in six days you shall work and rest on the seventh. For this is how God did it. God worked six days and rested on the seventh, and if those days are not literal, consecutive, twenty four hour days, then you don't have to they didn't have to observe the Sabbath, and the Sabbath would become meaningless. Then we saw that uh, the New Testament also took the creation account literally with Luke and his genealogy for Jesus uh, accepts that as literal and true and then Jesus and his affirmation. In uh, Matthew 19, that God uh, made man male and female and in the, created them in the image of God. And then in Genesis chapter 2 said that the two shall become one flesh. And so he took that as literal historical individuals. So if you reject that, that you reject Genesis 1 and 2 as literal, then you have to reject Jesus. And then you just might as well throw your Bible away. Paul, Paul tells us, the one, it's the only one time I know for sure that he uses the word allegory. And he uses it to make a, make a theological point, And he tells us so. So we looked at all those and that the Bible took those Old Testament genealogies uh, seriously. So the basic problem is treating science and the Bible as if they are equally valid. So what we're going to look at tonight is counterattacking the falsehoods. How do we decide who's, who's right? So I'm going to, since we went through this, this is the main issue. It's an issue of epistemology. That was the big blast of enlightenment that I received in my first year in seminary, that the biggest problem people have is how they know what they know. How do you know truth? That is the problem. That's a problem with charismatics. That's a problem with all kinds of cults. That's a problem with the pagan worldview. It's how do you know truth? Or is there truth? This is the big issue. So the Bible says God created the world and uh, the education system and the uh, scientific community says no, that's that's wrong. Uh, doesn't that sound like somebody else? God said, "Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." And Satan said, "No, that's wrong. You won't die." That's the issue. That is the fundamental issue in life. It's the issue of authority. And who? El- where else do we first first see the problem of authority? Isaiah fourteen and Ezekiel twenty eight when Satan fell. He disobeyed God. He wanted to be like God. So that's the issue. It's authority. That's why God always seems to emphasize authority and humility all the way all the way through the scriptures. So when the evolutionary theories began to develop and then when Darwin came out with uh, Origin of Species, you had three responses that we're going to look at. Surrender the truth, accommodate and reinterpret the truth, and counterattack. So in the first one, science just takes over. Everything has to be interpreted on the basis of science. Fundamentally, that means we interpret the Bible on the basis of limited human experience. The second is uh, science is equal in authority to the Bible, but no two things are equal. One always seeks to rule the other, and so science eats up the Bible. And then third, uh, we are to counterattack. We'll explain that tonight. So in the surrender to the truth, basically this is what happened science is better than the bible so we must understand the world only through science and only through the natural elements and forces and so it's basically a surrender to science and the result of that was religious liberalism unitarianism uh unity churches ecumenicalism everything just falls apart you no longer have a basis for to answer the questions of why why are we here why is it important so we surrender the truth. That's the first option. And then we have the second, which is to accommodate to evolution, try to figure out some way to to merge it. But by doing that, you're always going to have to deny a literal historical interpretation of Scripture. And the result is that, that um, I don't know, we've got a new headgear here, and it's bothering me. Um, That's it. You just accommodate. You try to mix it all together. The basic assumption in both of the first two is that science is never wrong. Some of the Bible contradicts, and then that leads to some of the Bible then contradicts science. As a result of that, then we've misunderstood the Bible. Why couldn't we have misunderstood science? But, you know, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, so we just naturally go to, oh, well, the Bible must be wrong. Then I, Why? Then I can do whatever I want to. If the Bible's not right, then I can do whatever I want to. So we reinterpret the Bible. It's not science. Uh, it's, uh, it can't be tested. The hypotheses can't be tested. There's no experiments that are possible, and you can't verify any conclusions. So we went through various things with the. I've already mentioned them. The, the trying to add numbers to the genealogy, which doesn't work. Uh, the old Earth gap view that doesn't work, um, and then uh, the reinterpretation of the word days to mean tens of thousands of years. Uh, one big problem with that is if if Adam is created on day six, then let's say it's 20,000 years before you have Genesis 3. And then when you add up his, his age in Genesis uh, Genesis 5, he's not he can't be 930 years old. And the text is very clear. What's really interesting is that there is a, um, a very well-respected, uh, and many of us in our camp, because he's, he's mostly dispensational, he's pre-trib, uh, he spoke at, uh, Chaffer, at I mean at, at, um pre-trib two or three years ago, Walt Kaiser. Respect him greatly for many of the things that he's done. But I found out that one of our guys on this trip told me that uh, he has a view. We found out on this trip how he got it because this is it comes out of a Jewish view that the first three days weren't 24 hours, but the next three were 24 hours. I'd never heard that before. Just see, so much to learn in this world, and we have so little time. So the day-age view is the other view, and those are the dominant views. There's others, but we won't get into those uh, with with this summary. So all of them surrender to the church. So you have the problems of death before the fall, uh, the problems with Old Testament taking the creation account literally as well as the New Testament. I'm going to skip through these so we can get into the new stuff. We finished up last time with the problem of treating science in the Bible as equally valid. There's a truth claim, and that truth claim is saying that what science comes up with is equally authoritative as what the Bible says, or so, it claims to be equally authoritative and equally true. That's what the Bible says. So how do you decide? Notice what's happened. That puts you in the same position of Eve, of deciding who's right. And so it throws back on you as an individual saying, well, I just have finite knowledge, so I need to determine whether God's right or science is right. And you're already in trouble once you do that. So by putting God's Word at the same level of importance... As, as Eve put Satan's word, it's, it's the basic problem. We have to start with the word of God is true. The word of God is what it says it is. It is accurate and true. And so, uh, we saw these charts. The Bible teaches a creator creature distinction where Yahweh's words are absolute truth and the creature's words are not. Satan's words do not have the same authority as God's words. The scientist does not have the same authority as God. And the scientists who work for uh, various uh, medical associations related to how they're going to handle COVID uh, certainly don't know. They have such limited knowledge. And then on top of that, there's a political control factor. And so there's not anything that comes out about this that I believe anybody can can honestly uh, deal with or understand. So we need to be very cautious about the, any more mask mandates or anything else that comes down uh, from the government. And I know some people don't agree with me, and that's just too bad. Um, biblical creation teaches that that Creator has a level of authority that is over the the creation, and that he defines the creation. We don't define the creation apart from the creator. In the Garden of Eden, who defines what trees you can eat and what trees you can't? God. When man decided that he could make that decision apart from God, what happened? It caused all the problems that we see. Now, the Bible is the truth. In our study in Ephesians, we've seen that it, uh, that Paul talks about we have put off the lie and that we are to uh, communicate on the basis of the truth with our neighbor, that's loving our neighbor as ourself. Peter puts it this way. In First Peter one twelve, he says, Therefore, I will not neglect to remind you constantly about these things, even though you have known them and have been made stable by means of the truth that you now have. So are, are this present truth. So so it's the truth that gives us stability. He goes on to talk about this in uh, verses verses sixteen and following. He says, "For we, referring to the apostles, we did not follow clever myths when we have made known to you the power." and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't make it up. This isn't some fable. He says, um, but we were eyewitnesses of the majestic glory. Notice that he's, but he's not ultimately going to base it on experience of being an eyewitness. Look at verse 17. He says, for he, referring to Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, when did, when did, that, when did the Father say that? The Father said that at when? He said it twice. You ought to guess, guess at least one of them. He, at the baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration. could you have recorded it with your mp3 recorder if you had one yes you could it was audible it was everybody heard it so everybody's heard this it's not some individual private experience but it is one that is uh completely uh completely understood by everyone that was there And so that is comparable, that is divine revelation that took place right there. The Father revealed it from heaven, announcing Jesus was his beloved Son. And in verse 18, Peter says, And we also heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, that's an allusion to when Israel is at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God began to speak, and they could all hear it. And what did they say? Oh, this is so wonderful. We get to hear God's voice. Isn't that tremendous? No, they said, Moses, Moses, you go up there and talk to God. We can't hear his voice anymore. But they heard it. They knew it. There's objective truth there, objective revelation from God that they that they all know. So 2 Peter 1.19, he goes on to say, and so we have the prophetic word. That it, that's the Old Testament. The prophetic word from the Old Testament is confirmed with the coming of the Messiah which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts now the morning star is a reference to numbers 2417 and Luke uh Luke 178 putting those together in numbers 2417 a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab. But that is where you get the prophecy of the star. But the star is a was a physical phenomena of the Shekinah glory in the heavens. But the real star, in terms of using it like a celebrity, is what's what it's signifying, which is the birth of Jesus. And he's the one who is going to have the scepter. And then uh, uh, Luke 1, uh, 78 uh, talks about... God's merciful compassion; the dawn from on high will visit us. That is the uh, the reference to the day dawning, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ in his in his coming. And then in first Peter, in Second Peter one twenty and twenty one, but know this first of all, first priority that no prophecy in Scripture was ever originated in any individual's own understanding. Now I've retranslated this so it's clearer. Um, it never originated in any individual's own understanding. It wasn't part of the private interpretation is how it's translated. And what that means is the prophets weren't making this up as they went along. And he goes on to explain that for no prophecy uh, was ever originated or was carried along. That's the core meaning of the word that's used there, which is repeated when it's talked about the Holy Spirit. So that's why I used it twice for no prophecy was ever uh, ever originated or was carried along from human explanation or interpretation. But men spoke from God when they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is what we we have to start with. We may not understand how it happened. We may not understand all the details, but we need to understand that this claim, it speaks from God. So how do we counterattack the falsehoods? Now, why should we counterattack? What's that all about? A counterattack has to be understood in terms of how the Bible teaches spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare isn't something that is external to us. It is what takes place between your ears. Spiritual warfare has to do with what's between your ears. We'll look at verses on that in just a minute. And so that will help us understand just exactly what it means by uh, counterattacking. What are we counterattacking? So we'll begin in 2 Corinthians 10,4 through six. In Second Corinthians 10,4 through six, we read, "For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That's just old, old English for fleshly, that is, its human viewpoint. It comes from sin nature. Our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds." Mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Well, where are those strongholds? Are they outside of us or inside of us? Verse 5, casting down, in other words, tearing apart arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It's tearing apart an argument. Can you listen to somebody, identify their core problem and tear apart their argument? You can, Many of us can sit there and go, "I know they're wrong, I just can't pinpoint it." So we had a great example when I was in New York last week. We visited a we visited the Lubavitcher synagogue the the core mothership of the whole kavad movement and I don't know how much you know about it. Some of you' have been to Israel, you know a little bit about it, but there was a rabbi. Uh, it's named Lubavitcher because it comes from a town of that name, Lubav- Lubavitch in Poland. And so they had a, a um, they had a rabbi in the who died in the 90s. His name was uh, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, and he's what they call a Rebbe. Okay, a rabbi is like the pastor of a local church. A rebbe, rebbe, would be somebody who started a movement. Like Martin Luther would have been a rebbe. John Calvin would have been a rebbe. Somebody, somebody like that. So they they thought he's the he is the the Messiah. And so one of their very top rabbis, who is a um, uh, who's a YouTube star. He's got the long white beard and wears the black hat, and everything came in, and he spoke with us for an hour and a half. Usually he would only talk to these groups for an hour, but we were pastors, so he went on for an talked for an hour, uh, an hour and a half, and I kept sitting there, and I had to think. There's a, a certain amount that he's saying that is true. How do you take it apart? You have to think about that. And one of the first things I learned in seminary in one of my first theology classes was if you grant the presuppositions of your opponent in a debate, then if everything in his arguments are logically coherent and logically developed, then you'll lose your debate. You have to go for the presupposition. And what was his presupposition? His presupposition to the whole thing was that man is not basically a sinner. Everything else flows from that. If man is perfectible, then society is perfectible, and we can perfect it so that we can. it will be welcoming for God to come and live amongst us. That was his whole thesis. Um, so we have to cast down arguments that means we have to think we have to be educated that's why we come to bible classes to grow and understand these things that's part of my job to equip the saints casting down arguments and every every not some every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of god this is powerful this is this is a marching order for most christians who wish it weren't in their bible they ignore it bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of God. Not some thoughts, not most, but every thought. It's a war. Look at that language. Weapons of warfare, mighty in God, pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and high things, uh, bringing every thought into captivity. We are in a war. We refer to it as spiritual warfare. We refer to it as the angelic revolt. We are in a war, and we have to wake up and realize that our, our children or our, and our grandchildren will become casualties in the conflict. We have to teach this to them. So what I get out of this are about five points. First of all, we're in a war. It's a spiritual war, which is a battle for the mind. So the battle here, the pulling down of the strongholds, the counterattack is taking place between our ears. We are in this spiritual war, and we are the soldiers. Point number two, the battle today is between the thinking imposed on our children, our grandchildren, and on us by Satan's world, which today is critical race theory. Critical race theory is going after not only Christians, but also it's got strong anti-Semitic components. It is anti-Israel and pro-Palestinian. And that's an important point to bring out if you're uh, talking with Jewish people. But you have to have your ammo put together and understand it. But it is inherently uh, anti-Israel and uh, anti-Semitic. Marxism, cancel uh, cancel culture, uh, historical revisionism is is just rampant today. Uh, evolutionary pseudoscience. The third point is that, um, trying to get things to work over here. There we go. Uh, Third point is that uh, this human viewpoint is opposed in context here to the knowledge about God. So that's the conflict. It's all these ideas that are brought up to oppose God oppose uh, the uh, establishment truths of Scripture as well as the specific truth for believers. And that's the battle. Uh, so we have to arm our children. We have to teach them and equip them and train them because they, this, you know, evolutionary thought, environmentalist thought, the fruits of critical race theory, nobody will ever utter the word critical race theory. So you've heard a lot of teachers and, and administrators come, we don't teach critical race theory. What they're saying is we don't go into the classroom and give them a lecture on critical race theory. But what they're doing comes out of, it's the byproduct of their, uh, their, their accepting the assumptions of critical race theory. So the fourth point is that we need to capture take captive these pagan thoughts that are even within our own head. We have to be able to identify them and lock them away into prison. No, I don't have these on slides. I have them on my notes. Okay, they will be in the transcript. And then the fifth point is, you see, you've I've forgotten how to sit and take notes just by listening. Fifth point is so we can be obedient to God. That's the focal point here. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So that's the, fo- the end result is application and obedience. Romans twelve two a verse we've gone over many, many times. Don't be conformed to this world or pressed into the world's mode, but be transformed by the renovation of your thinking. It's thinking, people. It is thinking. It's not coming to church and emoting. That's liberalism. That's just exactly what Satan wants you to do, is come to church and emote. So he leaves those churches alone. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may demonstrate that God's will is good and complete and acceptable. So here's the issue: in the first group, the Bible is in the in the counterattack. The Bible is prioritized over science. We go to the Bible. We are going to judge experience by the Bible, and we're not going to judge the Bible by experience. We are going to evaluate the conclusions of science on the basis of the scripture and not change our understanding of the Bible based on the assumptions that come out of science whether it is social science or actual science. So people who hold to this view of the Bible understand that the Bible they, their assumptions the Bible is the true Word of God and that it is without error. It is inerrant and infallible, and it is the basis of all, all truth. So this illustrates what we're to do is to push back on what the world teaches if it goes against God's Word. And, uh, you know, I've been, had the privilege a number of times to be in a, um, a Jewish home on Shabbat and you just think it's about resting, taking a nap, the kids are reading comic books or whatever. No, they're not. Uh, and most of these homes, they're training them from a young age. They'll say, okay, they'll take one kid and they say, tomorrow you're going to defend the, Israel's right to the land and the other kid and you're going to defend uh, the Palestinians' right to the land. And then the next week they're going to switch and you're going to debate and you're going to defend Israel's right to the land and the other one's going to defend the Arab because that's how you learn to think. How many times have you had your kids sit down and debate each other uh, formally on evolution versus creation, had them switch positions, or free grace versus lordship? That's what you're supposed to do as a parent, teach them to think. Not teach them to emote, not teach them to have fun, but teach them to fight a battle between their ears. So our assumption is, number one, the Bible is never wrong. Never. Never. It may be mistranslated. It may be misinterpreted sometimes, which we can straighten out. But we're always assuming that what God reveals, A, he reveals accurately and without error, and B, it is, under, it is revealed to be understood. It's not just some kind of mystical thing that, oh, well, I just can't understand it. No, yeah, God gave us the Holy Spirit so we could understand it. You just have to think. Third, the Bible is right. And our view of science is often faulty or incomplete. They don't have enough data. And finally, we just need to do more work and more research, and a lot is done. So as we looked at it, the first group surrendered, the second group accommodated, and the third group is on the counterattack. And they have provided a lot. So it goes back to this, that they accept the fact that the Bible is the Word of God, and it is absolute truth, and we need to understand it. So how do we do that? Well, what we do is in this, in this particular chart, uh, believers need to be trained in things like the philosophy and the sciences, and they need to ex- be experienced in critically analyzing the hypotheses and the data. Why do they need to do that? So that they can give the rest of us the tools we need to teach our kids so that they can win that battle to take every thought that's intellectual activity captive and to tear down these strongholds. And so that is important to understand those things. That's every bit a part of doctrine. And that is part of truth. That is being able to live the Christian life. Because if you are being suckered by accepting Satan's counterfeit Philosophies because they're dressed up real nice, like like uh, like Satan's deception. Remember, Satan shows up as an angel of light. He doesn't show up with with red skin and horns and a pitchfork. He doesn't show up like uh, some uh, Dracula figure all dressed in black. He he's he looks like he is the most beautiful angel ever, and that's how he was created. And so that that that. Uh, confuses people, and it deceives them. So we have to quite learn to properly question. Now, I'm going to give you something that all of a sudden I'm real slow. I've never been a fast thinker. I never will be. I look at people, and they just think really fast. It takes me a long time to think through stuff. But I know that in the schools, in elementary schools all the way up, a big thing in curriculum is that they're teaching critical thinking. But to teach critical thinking, you have to have a position of absolute truth from which you can evaluate things. And that's not what they're doing. I think that the, when they use the word critical, that is the Trojan horse of critical, critical theory. Critical race theory is just a subset of what is called critical theory. And from what I'm reading now, all of a sudden everything started to make sense, that that's, that's what's happening. Because w- when you teach these kids critical Critical thinking skills, that's not what, uh, that's not the critical thinking skills that I use, which is bringing all the categories of systematic theology and all the exegetical conclusions of Scripture to bear on what somebody is saying. So we have to push back on what the world teaches. We are not to be conformed to the thinking of the world, and we're to trust in God's Word. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And here are some. Uh, sources that you can go to, and Barb will put these on the uh, in the little uh, description of the lesson so people can find them. Some of these are at the... You can go to a page on the Dean Bible Ministries website where we have other ministries, and some of these are, are there. Uh, Charlie's Bible Framework, for if you get a little more advanced, you can go through that. Answers in Genesis.org, uh, Creation Ministries International... Uh, Institute for Creation Research, uh, the Creation Research Society, uh, which is uh, creationresearch.org. And there's also one, I thought I put it in here, it's called Master Books, Master Creation, something like that, masterbooks.com. And um, matter of fact, I had that, I put that on a On a website, I wanted to show you this. So we will, there it is. It was. Okay, there we go. This is at masterbooks.com. And they've got a column of books on apologetics, young earth, theology, reference books, physics, uh, Noah's Ark and Flood, geology, evolution, dinosaurs, chemistry, biology, astronomy, and various books, activity books, audio books, Bible stuff for kids, stuff for older kids, all kinds of material, masterbooks.com. They've got homeschool material, They've got uh, all kinds of uh, stuff for kids broken down by ages. So, this is a tremendous resource. A lot of the things that they have are, are books from other creationist organizations. So, they have, for example, here I'll just go to Noah's Ark. They have uh, the, the Global Flood. I can't read who wrote that. John Morris. That's Henry Morris's son. That's ICR. Uh, ICR. So some of these are ICR. Some of them, some of them Noah's Ark. That's A an Answers in Genesis uh, production. Uh, the true story of Noah's Ark. I think that's and so, answers, in other words, they just have stuff from all the different, uh, different uh, creation publishing houses. So that's a great, uh, great tool to um, have. To look at. Okay? So those are so some of them. They've done tremendous work. Now, at the end of this lesson, there are several questions that they bring up. One of them is the question of, are human beings animals? That's, that's a brilliant thing to ask, because all of us were taught that growing up. And what happens is you go into the classroom, and they'll give the students assignments, because from the time you're, you're probably in second or third grade... Uh, they're breaking down, um, they're breaking everything down according to, um this over here, um, they're breaking this all down according to uh, the different types of living things there are. You've got living things or organic life and non-living things, inorganic life, and then you have animals and uh, plants and fungi and bacteria and protest. That is a word I'm not familiar with. The quacks wrote this. They have been trained and reared with a British English. So you'll often find things spelled a little weird in their material because they're using British spelling and not American English spelling. But man is not an animal. We're very different. We're different from the angels. We're made in the image of God, and we are unique, and we're not like anything else in God's creation. And we're given the responsibility to be the Lord or be the ruler over the creation. That's the original creation mandate. A second question they ask is, can science really determine the age of the earth? And the answer is, not at all. There are and i've downloaded these and i tried to i didn't have much time today i was going to look for them on my computer but icr came out and you can go to their website or you can talk to call and talk to somebody there and find out how to go and download it and you can i think you can download it from free from wherever wherever it is they had a project that they produced two two volumes that i don't think anybody sitting in front of me could possibly work their way through These were projects that took them several years to work through, uh, biology, physics, uh, chemistry, geology projects, where they were looking at all of the different uh, methods that evolution uses to arrive at the age of, of of an old Earth. And based on the assumptions that evolutionists use, To look at the data, that is, that everything decays or deteriorates at the same rate that it always has. Whatever the processes are, they're the same today as they always were. See, as Christians, we say, no, no, they're not. God used processes in the six days of creation that, um, uh, that he shut down at the end of that week. And so we can't go back and figure out what they were or extrapolate from what goes on today, what he did in the creation week because they were different processes, so that's why you can't repeat it. So science uses um, a lot of different, uh, different ways to measure um, decay rates and things of, uh, things of that nature, and so there, it's all a guess. Uh, the simplest way to show a problem is that how do you know how old a fossil is? because of the layer of sediment that it's found in. Well, that seems to make sense. Well, how do you know how old that sediment is, that sediment is? Is is there a marker in there? Is there a little tag in there, a little little QR code or something that you can scan that'll tell you that I'm 30,000 years old? No. You can tell how old the sediment is because of the fossil that's there. Well, how do you know that the fossil is so old? Because of the rock that it's in. It's a circular argument. That's the only way you know. And and then see here's here's an illustration that um, that they have in the in the book that you can uh, look at a can. Can you look at a candle burning? Candle it's burning down. Can you tell how long the candle was originally by looking at it? That's the question, number one over here. How long or how tall was the candle when it was first lit? So you can watch it for a while and under the second point, you can determine the burn rate, how fast it burns down. And so you can see how much wax is burnt every minute and you can extrapolate back. Guess what? There's a problem. You don't know what you started with. You have to know you have to have an endpoint. You can you could extrapolate back. Well, it burned down at at uh, you know an inch an hour. So 20, 20 hours ago, it would have been uh, twenty inches high. Wait a minute, but we don't know how long it was to begin with. So at that point, it's 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 get it's it's guesswork. And so you have to know. The only thing you know is the burn rate and the length of the candle. You don't know what the starting point was. So the formula is how long has the candle been burning equals the length of the whole candle minus the length of the candle now. But see, if you don't know the length of the whole candle at the beginning, you can't get anywhere. And so there, it's, it's like, you know... Like standing on something, you're trying to pull pull yourself up with. You, it, you're just not going to get anywhere. So uh, all of that, then you take the length of the candle, or uh, the, uh, the length of time the candle's been burning, the length of the whole candle the, minus the length of the candle now divided by the burn rate. That's how you get there. But we don't we don't we don't know uh, to have this accurate. Um, uh, get get a accurate number. You have to know how long the candle was to begin with. We don't know. In dating the age of the Earth, or the, 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 so there's one way is to do that. Another way is to ask the person who actually lit the candle what time he lit it. And so God tells us that in, in the Scriptures. Another uh, method. Um, it, another problem that you've got is when God created the earth one second after he finished on the sixth day, everything the trees were fully grown, they looked like they were hundreds of years old. When Adam was created, he was created. Jews think he was twenty years old, others have said thirty years old, but he looked like he he didn't look like he was a second old. he looked like he was had been alive for 20, 30 years. He looked like a mature human male. So it has the appearance of age, and that would include everything. God's pretty smart. He can create a tree that has tree rings. So you get a problem. So Job runs up against this in Job 1, 38, 1 to 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So God is asking all these rhetorical questions of Job. What do you know? Were you there when I created everything? Were you there when, um, uh, were you there when, verse four, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Uh, Who determined its measurements? Surely you know who stretched the line upon it, who, who laid it out, who, who measured everything, who created all of the chemicals and how they would all interface with each other. Uh, what's, it, what's it foundation like? If you look at the earth, if you look at any of these pictures that the astronauts have taken of the earth, it's hanging out there in midair. What's holding it in place? The power of God. It's, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But you can't measure that. You can't recreate that in a laboratory. And the bottom line is when the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, one of the things I've sort of skipped over because we've gotten out of time and I'm trying to keep to a schedule, but sometimes we run out of time, is the relationship of human history to the angelic revolt. And the angelic revolt, and that's got to be taught to the kids. That, that Satan falls and it's mirrored in what God does with humanity, that when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them responsible choice just like he had given the angels. And so it is demonstrating something. And you've heard different people speculate that Satan asks a question, something like, well, how could a just God and a loving God send his creatures to eternity in the lake of fire? I think that's part of the question. I think another part of the question is that it doesn't seem just that you would have such an extreme penalty for simply eating a piece of fruit. Eternity in fiery burning torment. But what God is showing is that any act, no matter how Apparently small or inconsequential, that is an act of disobedience to God, has consequences far beyond anything that we could possibly imagine at the time. And so we look around us, we see economic chaos, we see wars, we see disease, we see pandemics, we see governments, we see politicians. Uh, the curse of the earth is human viewpoint politicians. We see many different things. It's all the result of eating a piece of fruit that God said, don't eat it. And so the punishment is worthy of the crime because all of the suffering in human history is the consequence of Satan tempting Eve and what sin brings in. So it, it's a, it is a very powerful uh, demonstration, and Scripture ha- uh, teaches that. We'll touch on this as more as we go along, but that needs to be introduced in the creation part at the beginning as well. We have to recognize that science is based on worldviews, and worldviews describe a philosophy of thought. They don't describe science. It has to do with what's ultimate reality. Well, that's not science. You know, what, what's right and wrong, that's not, that's, that's not science. That comes from a religion. So worldview is closely related or has religion as a part of it. So science is really religion. If you look at the comp- contrast between a bi- biblical creator-creature distinction and the pagan worldview... In the biblical view, the creator sustains everything, but the pagan worldview denies a creator who can sustain anything. That's a head-on collision. And at the creaturely level, see, the first level is deals with the creator. The second level, the, the creature or the creation, uh, their view is that the creation sustains itself naturally. Now, how does that happen? So a, a great assignment to give kids is to research the kind of chemicals that are produced by a, a volcano that are thrown into the atmosphere in any given day or month or year and compare that to the so-called uh, uh, problems that that the Industrial Revolution has caused. In the pagan view, good and evil are forever. They're normal. It's normal. Dying is good. Being Being... Um being defeated and destroyed or being unable to survive is a good thing because it allows for the advance, the evolution of the of the human race. so you can't even say that suffering and death and famine are are bad because that's how evolution progresses over the centuries, Christians from Augustine in uh, the around the fourth century, fifth century a d Um, through Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, uh, the founders of modern science, all believed in a young earth. So the ultimate question is, Who's our authority? Is it the word of God or is it human beings? We either have authority over God's word or we submit to God's word. Those are the only two options. So when we look at these options, that the Christian response to evolution was the first two options, surrender and accommodation, were a compromise. And when you're compromising with God, you're destroying truth. So the only thing is to counterattack the falsehoods, which is what Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, that we are to take every thought captive for Christ. That means we have to submit all of our thoughts, opinions, beliefs, worldview to what the Scripture says. But to do that, you have to know something. What do you have to know? You have to know the Bible. You not only have to know what the Bible teaches in terms of its systematization and organization, but you have to understand how to read the Bible and be able to understand what the Bible is saying for yourself. So you have to teach two two or three different things. That's a lifetime commitment. And if you don't do that, you're going to be living like the devil's disciple in the devil's world. The end result is not going to be good. So we have to teach our kids because they have to have the hope, of the, the hope of God. They have to understand what truth is, and they have to be saved. And so we have to teach them the whole realm of doctrine, We have to teach them the totality of God's Word so they can take every thought captive for Christ. And that's our mission. So we have to pull together to do that. So that concludes the fourth lesson and next time we'll come back and start into the fifth lesson. So we are making progress slowly but we're getting there with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded of your truth, that your word from Genesis 1 to Revelation 20, uh, 22 is coherent. It is consistent. There is, There are no logical fallacies. There's no failures. It has to be understood in terms of how you revealed it. And we have to study it. It doesn't all come at once. It can't just be briefly read and said, oh, well, I found a problem here or there. No, it has to be thought about. So, Father, we have to teach this to our children. Give us a real heart and desire to do that because we have to train the next generation that's part of our responsibility and the next generation, the one after that. So, Father, uh, we pray that we may be adequate to the task and we challenge our parents and those that are listening, grandparents and parents, to, to uh, stay the course with this curriculum that we may grow in our understanding and be equipped to teach our families and to prepare them for what they will face in the world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.